We're going to go ahead and get started. Good to see you all this morning. Hopefully when you came in this morning, you were given a piece of paper and a pencil if you want to grab that. If you did not get a piece of paper and a pencil, raise your hand and there are folks who can bring those around to you. Just raise it up high. We're going to try We're going to just do a little exercise here before we start the sermon. So there's some right here, some over here. Tom will find you. Just keep your hand up until he, they get around to you. Okay, so here's what we're doing. We are approaching the season of Lent. We're still in the season of Epiphany, but we're headed toward Lent. And so we have an assignment. This is, and this is the assignment. Um, if you have done Lent before with us and have actually given up something for Lent, that's part of what we do is do a Lenten fast. If you've done that before, this is your assignment. We want you to write on a piece of paper, on this piece of paper, your biggest Lenten failure ever. Like, how did you fully blow it? Like, maybe you tried to give something up and just, like, bombed out after the first few days. Or maybe you stuck with it and it did not do what you thought it would do. Um, I one time tried to give something up and I was just irritated for six weeks like that was my whole Lent so um, or maybe like how long it took you to break and and fudge um, just just give your failure and then maybe also list your something you gave up that was great that was really good and we're gonna put those on the wall for folks who have never done Lent before and really for all of us to to get some ideas and then if you have never done Lent before never given something up for Lent this is your assignment. Just write down your questions about what Lent is all about, um, why we observe it. Maybe um, just think of one or two words that come to mind when you think of Lent or the idea of fasting. Write that in there. And you can take time to think about it. And we're just going to gather them as you walk out. There's a little basket on the camera stand right there. You can just drop it in there. And we're going to put them all on the wall so that we can um, next week come back and, and read them as we prepare for Lent. So that's your assignment. Okay. Um, in January of 2009, U.S. Air Flight 1549 out of LaGuardia headed for Charlotte. And it was like a, a normal day. Weather was fine. Crew was experienced. And then about 90 seconds into the flight, the plane ran into a flock of Canada geese. And, um, you know, airports do all kinds of things to try to keep from having birds in the flight path, and because just one goose can be a problem. This was a flock of them, so this, this um, plane just never had a chance. Um, this, it, they flew through this flock of geese. Both engines caught fire. The crew says it actually obscured their view, view out the windshield. I want to think about what, he, what happened that would have done that. But, um, and then the passengers say that the smell of cooked birds and jet fuel filled the cabin. It's lovely. Just what you want to smell. And then they started to lose, lose power in the engines. The captain, of course, you already know, is the famous Chesley Sullenberger III, who went by the nickname Sully, and who was bravely rocking the Tom Selleck mustache in 2009, right? Just fantastic. He was a former Air Force fighter pilot, had flown commercial airlines for 30 years, and so it was good to have him at the helm, right? Passengers say they could um, feel and hear the impact. They could see the engines on fire out the windows, 
and they immediately stopped climbing. You know that feeling when, when they're they like, we're, we're doing our descent, you can feel it, they turn the nose down, or it's like, like a roller coaster um, going over the top. Sullenberger, up in the, in the cockpit, he knew immediately they were in big trouble. Um, dual engine failure at low altitude over a populated area is like the nightmare scenario for a pilot. They were heading north, they had only climbed to about 3,000 feet, and they were over the Bronx, like densely populated area. And he radios in, says, we hit birds, we're coming back. They started moving planes out of the way. I actually didn't know this, but um, the normal procedure in that situation is for the first officer to fly the plane and the pilot to manage the situation. That's procedure. And the first officer was good. He was a longtime pilot, like 25 years of experience, had just flown the takeoff. But he was also brand new to the A320 um, Airbus plane. This was his first real flight, actually. Um, that also meant that he had been, just been through all the safety drills and all, all that training. He might actually be better to evaluate and, and analyze. And so Sully's first decision in this um, emergency was quite unconventional. Um, he decided that he would fly the plane. And he kept the co-pilot kind of trying to restart the engines and watching over what he was doing. They immediately turned around, headed back toward LaGuardia, brought them right over the Hudson, heading south. LaGuardia, LaGuardia would then be on, clear on the other side of, the, of Manhattan. He started looking at his airspeed, his altitude, um, how fast they were falling. He knew they couldn't make it back. And so he asked the tower, what's near here? Like, where's Teterboro? He could actually see Teterboro Airport from the air, and his judgment was, we can't make it that far. The other option was the Jersey Turnpike, but who likes to take the Jersey Turnpike, right? Like, <laughs> and in, in the aftermath, actually, they, they, were, um, they did extensive flight simulator reenactments of the day, and they said that this moment is probably the critical moment in the whole ordeal because it really goes against a pilot's instincts to even think about landing in water, ditching in the Hudson River. And what, as they put people in this situation, um, investigators found that most pilots headed for Teterboro and came up short, ended up crashing just short of the runway. And so a couple minutes after the bird strike, Sully calmly told the, cap, the tower, we're going to be in the Hudson. Remember this? Remember the recording of it? And it was like, I mean, he said it like, I think I'll take a nap. Like, it was very, very calm. <laughs> Now, landing an Airbus A A320 on water is, you know, not normal, not a normal thing to do. And it's one of those really complex situations. You've got to do a lot of little things right. And there's no time to really think or go through a checklist. They had to do a ton of stuff, like disengage the autopilot. They had to override flight management systems so the plane didn't fight them. They had to call the tower and declare emergency, um, turn the ignition of the engines on in case they started to refire. And they had to make this huge decision of what are we actually going to do. And then he did another thing. He started something called the APU, the auxiliary power unit. When they lost the, the engines, they lost power. And um, he did this much earlier than like procedures, checklists would have told him to do, which investigators also said was part of why they probably made it. It was giving him vital data. But his main decision had to do with airspeed. Um, if you were like in the plane, like looking out the windows of the plane at the time, all, all you and I would be thinking is like, let's, 
slow this thing down a little bit. Like if we're going to run into something, let's do it at just like, can we do like five, 10 miles an hour maybe to pull that off? Any trained pilot, of course, is thinking about airspeed. And there's only one way to gain airspeed without your engines. And they were climbing at the time they hit the birds. And so this pilot had to push the nose down um, into a shallow dive to try to pick up some speed. The problem is planes don't land like this. They land like this, right, with their engines firing and their nose up at a lower speed. But without engines, um, the only way to get airspeed was to put the nose down and let gravity help speed them up. And to hold this till the very last second, and then, then um, this meant that their descent was lightning fast. If your nose down when you hit the water, this is not good. This is not a submarine, right? You'll tumble. And if your nose up and hit too soon or too hard, it can just literally break the plane in half. And so he put them into this shallow dive to pick up speed. Glided just over the George Washington Bridge, picked a spot in the river that he could bring it down um, low and fast. Um, one other interesting move that was not in his training was that he chose a different flap setting um, to keep it almost level going into, into landing instead of nose up really far. It's just slightly up. This reduced drag that let them keep their speed to the last minute also just helped them um, hitting the water kind of more even. And, of course, you know the story. You know what happened, the miracle on the Hudson. They hit hard but stayed um, intact. And to this day, he's one of the only pilots to ever have, for one thing, glided without engines in a jet airplane. It hardly ever has happened. And the only one to ditch with no fatalities. It's quite incredible. But now they're floating on the Hudson, and the plane is quickly seeking, sinking. Within seconds, um, we know the water was like chest high in the back of the airplane, so the crew is just hustling, 155 passengers onto the wings. And then Sully, we told, or we were told, as he recounts it, walked the aisles of the plane back to front twice to make sure everybody was off before he stepped foot on the wing. And to top it all off, when he got out of the plane, he gave his jacket to one of the passengers because they were wet and cold. It was like 20 degrees that day. No word on if Sully like, smoked a cigarette and had himself a Dos Equis, <laughs> but he's definitely the most interesting man in the world, right? <laughs> Stay thirsty, my friend, Sully. His story is that he was, he was, yeah, there he is. He was, uh, he was five years old when he decided to be a pilot. Got his pilot's license in high school and uh, um, went to the Air Force Academy. Was a fighter pilot, then a, a flight instructor in the Air Force. Then he trained on commercial planes, flew for 30 years, which meant every single year he, he spent a lot of hours in flight simulators thousands of hours in them over the course of his career, crashing wounded airplanes, because that's what they want to make you do, landing them every once in a while, then learning to land them um, consistently, just rehearsing for a disaster you hope will never come. And after all that training, you know how many times he practiced ditching in the water with no engines? Zero. No times. Because it's, it's is too remote and, and too complicated to simulate. And the weird thing is, the investigators that, that um, followed this event found that he had done several really kind of unconventional things 
choosing, for instance, to keep control of the plane himself, to start the auxiliary power so quickly, to ditch in the river instead of trying to make Teterboro, holding onto the dive until the last second and then choosing that lower flap setting to keep it um, more shallow. I mean, and what they decided was that if he would have just followed the rules, he probably would have crashed the plane. But he had broken these critical rules. Um, And he had done this not in spite of his training. He did it because of his training. Um, His training had shaped his instincts so well that he could actually um, improvise the correct response to a completely unique situation. And it was actually because of his training that he broke these rules. And because he broke these rules, he was able to save the plane. So I'm telling this overlong story because I love it, but also because in our passage today, I think Jesus is kind of recommending the Sully Sullenberger approach to discipleship within the kingdom of God. I think that's what he's doing. And it comes from his greatest teaching, the Sermon on the Mount, in which he asks his followers to break some rules, to defy Jewish law and their formal training, and then to kind of improvise faithfulness in order to embody the kingdom of God. And what he was teaching them in this section goes against their instincts and their training as faithful Jews. He began, if you remember, in the Beatitudes, blessing all the wrong people, right? The meek, the mourners, the peacemakers. And it's as as if he could feel the resistance coming in his audience. They were confused because, like, he talked like a rabbi, but then he kept flipping things over and saying the wrong thing. In the lead-up for our passage today, he's, he's kind of anticipating this. Mandy covered this last week. He says, I came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. He's kind of handling their objections there. I'm not rejecting Jewish tradition. I'm affirming it, right? But he's leading them toward a distinction between, like, following the letter of the law and following the spirit of the law. And, and sometimes following the letter of the law crashes the plane, so to speak. And so the kingdom requires improvisation, especially so that those on the margins can stay involved. And then he said, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. And so there's, there's a problem with the way Jewish leadership taught obedience. It was, it was not leading people to the kingdom of God. Now, one caveat. We have to be really careful here not to make like a straw man out of Judaism. Jesus was not saying that um, the Jewish religion or faith was defective. Remember he says, I came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And um, the way I... Am, have trained myself to think about this is that it's not that Jesus saw the Jewishness of his time as like totally broken and he came to to fix it. It's more like every faith on the planet was at the time was broken and um, they were missing crucial realities about God. And in fact, this is the way I I think of it myself. Um, It's really proper to, to say that the Judaism at the time of Christ was actually far more advanced than any of the other religions of the day. They had this really rich tradition, this long history of struggling with God and and with hard truths about themselves. And so the Jewish faith was the best way to make some of these corrections, maybe the the only way. 
um, to help them see what was missing um, in every faith tradition. I think this is why Jesus was born as part of the Jewish people. And thinking of it this way just sort of protects us from the anti-Semitism thing. So the Jewish concept that Jesus latches onto to start messing with their, their um, ideas of what's right and wrong is, um, in the, the Greek word is dikaiosune, which means righteousness. Usually it's translated righteousness, but it means righteousness and justice at the same time. Um, now, most of us hear righteousness, and we think, like, rule following, right? Very proper, pious people. But in, in Christ's teaching, and really in all of Hebrew scriptures, it's not about drawing lines and following rules. It's, righteousness is about connecting people relationally. It's about our relationship to God, to ourselves, to each other, to the world around us. So, so dikaiosune, righteousness, is about this way of being that reflects God's intention for humanity in the world and this way of relating to God and self and other in the world that leads to flourishing, that leads to shalom, peace, wholeness. And, and this is always difficult for us to get our arms around. Like, does, does following the rules make somebody a good person? Well, no. But does, um, can, can you become a good person and have no respect for rules and boundaries and discipline? I don't think so. And so it sort of fuels this age-old question, this part of all religion, part of all philosophy. Do humans act our way to a better way of thinking and feeling? Or do we think and feel our way to a better way of acting? And Jesus' answer to this question is yes. Yes, we do. And he sort of refuses to let them separate these two things. Um, Dallas Willard, one of my favorite philosophers and theologians, um, taught me to think of this um, around the words course and source for this question. So course is about directions, actions, like Jewish laws, Jewish customs. And then source is about motivation and desire, our longings, our loves. And some religions go way toward course. I was a Southern Baptist kid, so course was used against me a lot, <laughs> right? And other religions are all about source. They just make things about the heart, about the spirit, and almost kind of forget about what we do with our bodies. And Jesus says you have to hold them together. And the critique that he seems to be making of Judaism and implicitly then of all the religions of the day was that they were, they seemed to be using the course, like strict adherence to Jewish law, as a means of avoiding source problems in their life. And, and what all this course following was, was doing to the source, like the transformation of their hard hearts. So using Jewish laws and customs to avoid facing their own stuff and changing their own darkness and selfishness and brokenness. And, and all this focus on course, keeping the law, was leaving way too many people out. And their source was so off, they didn't seem to even care. So he was judging it, not just how it hits individuals, but how it hits the whole community. So if Sully Sullenberger only had course, like only had rules to follow, he would have crashed because there were no good rules for that situation. And life is like this, right? 
I mean, he had all this practice. He, he had course, like he had a ton of training that had shaped his instincts and imagination and even desires. And, and so the source was transformed for him. And then he could just sort of improvise his way to the faithful course. Um, when he found himself, especially in just a really difficult or uncharted situation. This is what Jesus is trying to teach his followers in the Sermon on the Mount. He's trying to connect the source of life and the course of life. And he does this by focusing them on relationships. And the way that he does this, it's really funny. He engages in this familiar form of teaching, but he totally messes with it. Like he flips it on its head. So he says, you have heard that it was said to those of ancient times, you shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to those that if you are angry with a brother or a sister, you will be liable to judgment. And if you insult a brother or sister, you will be liable to the council. And if you say, you fool, you will be liable to the hell of fire. So this, this form of teaching would have been familiar. It's, it's how the scribes taught in the synagogue. So what they would do, it was almost like, if I say knock, knock, you know to say who's there, right? It was like that. This is very familiar form. So they would read the text and then the scribes would say, well, you've heard it said, and they would say, Rabbi so-and-so interprets it this way. And then you have heard it said, Rabbi so-and-so interprets it this way. So they know this form, right? And it was all focused on the course, like what does strict observance of the law require of us? And so Jesus says, you have heard it said. And then he says, but I say, which would have been like a, a record scratch moment, like, <laughs> Who are you to say, you know? He says, but I say. A scandalous move. And then what followed moved them to think about how their actions, course, would situate them relationally toward God, self, other, the world. And how ignoring the impact of their course was really messing with the source, with their heart, their spirit, and especially the way it lived in relationships. It was ruining the, the soul of the community. And so with, like, murder, one of the Ten Commandments, right? This is, this is a big one. Do not kill. I'm kind of a fan of it. Um, but if you draw the line at murder, and then you're like, I hate everybody around me. I can't stand them with every fiber of my being. But it's okay because I haven't murdered anybody. Jesus is kind of like, I think you're sort of missing the point, man. Or if you insult a brother or sister, the word there is, um, I can't roll my R's, it's, it's racha, and with emphasis on right, racha, and it's actually, uh, um, they call it onomatopoeia when it's imitating a sound. It is an Aramaic word that imitates the sound of clearing your throat so you can spit at somebody. That's what racha is, right? He says, if you do that, yeah, we, we have bigger problems, a sign of contempt for another human being. If you say, um, you fool, that word is moros. It's where we get the word moron. And um, it's used actually in a familiar Psalm 14 where it says, the fool, moros, says in his heart, there is no God. So this, this, is, this is a way of saying to somebody, you have no capacity for God. You're too broken for the love of God. And so Jesus, he, he's saying like, um, you're trying to cut someone out off from the love of God. You don't get to do that. You kept the letter of the law. You haven't killed them. But, but if we, we hate those around us, what is it doing to the source, both for the person, but especially for the community? It's messing with community. 
And so the result will be the opposite of what they want. He says, you won't cut them off from God. What you actually do, you cut yourself off from God. Because you cut yourself off from the community. He's trying to help them see the spirit of the law isn't about drawing lines and following rules. It's about connecting people to God and self and each other and the world through relationships um, characterized by mutual concern and love and self-sacrifice. And so he says next, when, when you offer your gift at the altar, if you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave the gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and sister and then come off of your gift. Um, we, we encountered this, if you remember, last summer in Leviticus. It's part of their worship at the tabernacle. The goal of all of that, most of them had nothing to do with um, paying for sins. Um, that was just one day on the Day of Atonement, and the animal there didn't get killed, right? It's, this wasn't to re- erase sin, all this worship at the tabernacle. It was to restore fellowship to like clear the air from all the guilt they felt about how they treated each other to bring them out of hiding and draw them near to God's presence and before they were allowed to approach God they were required to make amends with their neighbor this has always been part of the Jewish story because it's impossible to love God and hate our neighbor and the reason for this goes all the way back to the creation narrative our, our neighbor bears the image of God. They reflect to us the image of God. The primary way we will ever encounter the love of God in our life is through the love of other people. So draw, you want to draw close to God? Draw close to the neighbor. He goes on with this line. Come, quick, um, come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're on the way to court with him, or your accuser may hand you over to the judge and you'll be thrown into prison. So this one... You know, going to court essentially is a way of saying, I'd rather be proven right than be in relationship with you. It, makes, it always makes me think of that. Who is the psychologist on Oprah, the guy with the mustache? Yeah, Dr. Phil. Do you want to be right or do you want to be happy? He would always say that. Like, and most people want to be right so they're not happy. Like, that's how that goes. It's, it's the same thing. It's basically a way of saying, I would rather go to jail than have to compromise or admit my mistakes. And Jesus like, you, this isn't going to do what you think it's going to do. One of my favorite um, teachers of spirituality, a guy named Richard Rohr, he always explains it this way. He says that Jesus is always asking us to do something that we don't want to do. And it's basically, it fits with this teaching. It's basically to try to learn how to give up a little of our own truth, our need to be right, or to be seen as good or righteous, to give that up for the sake of relationship, believing that the relationship can teach us a deeper truth and teach us a deeper reality of who we are because it has to come through relationship. So Jesus is like, it's, it's not about being proven right, man. It's about learning how to love, which is almost always just some form of self-sacrifice. And again, this teaching will move them toward love of God and love of neighbor um, by showing them how their actions, their course, situates them relationally with, with God and the other. Then he says, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that anyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery in his heart. And all the men look at their shoes, right? 
This one was used against me at every single church camp that I attended when I was a kid. <laughs> it was very effective, actually. It's funny, in Jesus' day, there was a sect of Pharisees. They were called the Bleeding Pharisees. And they got their name because they were so worried about lust and adultery that they wore blindfolds in public so as not to have to see women. And so they're constantly falling down and running into things and bleeding. They were the bleeding Pharisees. And adultery was a capital offense, right? You could be killed for it, at least stoned and and maimed if not killed. Lots of Jews were uncomfortable with this. The Pharisees kind of liked it. Remember that there's that story where they trapped the woman in adultery. The, um, the word here, it's really interesting. It's a very misunderstood ver- verse. The word look at in Greek is the word blepo. Blepo does not mean like ogling somebody, as you would think in this kind of adultery, lusty thing. Blepo means glance out of the corner of your eye. That's what it means. It's a little peek from behind the blindfold, right, of the bleeding Pharisees. And Jesus is saying, in essence, um, Just a peek out of the blindfold is enough. Almost as if to say, this is unavoidable. Right? To to avoid lust is not possible. It's part of the human struggle. Whether you're a a woman or a man, it it happens in different ways. But it's unavoidable. So why don't you just learn to respect women instead? Or men? Right? Can you love someone without having to control or possess them? Right? And, and all of us can follow the law strictly and still, in a sense, mistreat one another. That's what actually leaves behind this, this next part. He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Better lose a hand than your whole body. This gets misused a lot, too. The key word here is right. Your, your right hand. Why don't I just say your, your hand? Right hand, bells will go off for a Jewish reader. Right hand is the, the clean hand, the keeping of the law hand. The left hand is for doing unclean things because they didn't have toilet paper in those days. The right hand is clean. The left hand, you keep it behind your back most of the time. The right eye is the law-keeping eye. So figuratively, he's saying something like, if your law-keeping hand ends up taking you down, better to just cut it off, right? This is so, this is so radical. If keeping the law makes you into a pretender or a hypocrite or somebody who just goes around hurting people, then the law has become the source of a fragmented life. It will tank you and your whole community. And what you'll do is, what all of us who were raised evangelical have spent kind of our adult years trying to learn how to not do, trying to unlearn, which is that you'll fake it and blame others for their offenses and yours. He's like, if your law-keeping eye or hand causes you to sin, that, that's the problem. Another way to say it in modern parlance would be, if your right eye causes us to sin, we shouldn't tell women to put on more clothes, right? We need to reassess the way we relate to women or men or whatever it is. Then he goes on, you've heard it said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that anyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of unchastity causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So this one's tough, 
because a, a lot of members of our community um, have been through a divorce. And there's a lot of bad teaching. There's a lot of confusion about how this is used. And um, the, I think the, the key to it is just to remember women um, were property in the ancient world. Adultery was not about, like, love and that kind of stuff. But marriage and love were dis- disconnected. Adultery was about the violation of property rights for men. The laws were the protection of property. Men could divorce a woman for no reason at all. It's right, a little slip. And then the women had, of course, very few options of what to do. They could go back to their original family, but most of their families were poor and needed to marry them off. They could remarry, but that's not usually a good situation. Men, men preyed upon widows. Or they could become a slave or a, a concubine or a prostitute. Right? That's why they had to have the slip of paper, because if they got caught in those things, they had to prove they were divorced. And so he's moving against treating other human beings like possessions. The spirit of the law is not about just following rules. I follow the rule. I wrote the paper. It's not about that. It's, it's about connecting people to God and self and others in the world. So this, this also can't be used as like a blanket thing to say you can never be divorced. There are times when there are no good options there in the Sully Sullenberger sense. It's about relationships of mutual concern and love and self-sacrifice. Don't treat other human beings like possessions and then act like I'm following the rules. And then finally, there's that passage about not swearing oaths. He just says, basically, don't do it. Um, The thing that I always think of in this to understand it is, it's like when you buy a house and you go to the closing and you have to sign your name like a hundred different times over and over. And after a while, it's like with each signature, it seems like less and less of a significant thing. That's, That's what he's referring to. When you have to like pinky swear on everything, like maybe there's a problem that that is relational, like your whole community lacks integrity. And see this in our world, people's word isn't worth very much. And it should should be more like like the the right way I think about it um, is with my kids, the way I'm trying to be with my kids. Like when when I tell them I'm going to do something and I don't follow through, I know that will damage our relationship. And if I do that constantly, it's going to mess with them. Like how will they know that they're worthy of my attention or worthy of love and belonging. And, and they'll eventually start thinking it's their fault. Their worthiness will suffer. I, I talked to tons of people who that was kind of the deal, and then it becomes very hard to even believe God wants to give them time because their parents didn't. And, and so Jesus, Jesus says, like, don't promise to do things. Just do things. Don't promise to do what's right. Just do it. Keep faith with people. It's like, don't swear by the earth. You didn't create the earth. It's not yours to leverage. Don't swear by your head. You didn't create your head. Like, it's not yours to swear by. Just say what you mean. Mean what you say. Because it's not what you promise that matters. It's what you actually do. You shouldn't need oaths. Just do what you say you're going to do. And that's how people around you will come to know that they matter. And eventually, this will seep into their relationship to God. They'll know they matter. It's interesting, all of these, and we'll, we'll cover the last two next week, but all of these are actually from the second half of the Ten Commandments. Did you notice that? 
They're all commands, like don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't bear false witness. These are biggies. He's messing with sacred cows here. And he's taking on the heart of the Jewish law and asking them to break the rules so that they can reconnect course and, and source. Because it's possible to like hold to the letter of the law and miss completely the spirit of the law. And what Christ is trying to get them, and I think by extension us, to see is that the law was never about drawing lines and following rules or perfect performance. It has always been, always been about trying to draw people out into relationships. The self to God, the self to other people, God's image bearers, the self to the self, the self to all of creation. And to build in relationships of mutual concern and love and self-sacrifice. That's righteousness. It's not about keeping the law. Um, it's about participation in a community like that, what Jesus called the kingdom of God. And he's saying just kind of in these subversive ways, you can't love God and despise your neighbor. The neighbor will be the primary way you encounter the love of God. You want to draw close to God, draw close to neighbor. Because he wants a life embedded in a community that's characterized by this kind of love and self-sacrifice. This is how the kingdom comes. And really, the bigger danger to religious folks, and let's face it, we're at church on Super Bowl Sunday when the Chiefs are in the Super Bowl. Like, you guys are it. You're the... You're the best of the best when it comes to Christians. You actually showed up. The danger for us is that we'll observe the letter of the law and be, be viewed as very moral and upright people and miss the spirit of the law, which requires us to sort of break the rules sometimes, to appear as lawbreakers, as immoral Rule breakers, irreligious, to, and then to not put on airs and try to make up for it, not to pretend like we have it all together. Essentially what it means is we're all going to end up looking like ragamuffins because there's no set of religious laws that can handle every situation. There's just not. Some days in life, you're just trying to land the plane on the Hudson, you know, and there's no checklist, there's no procedure, and you feel like you're just doing it wrong. So following Jesus is, is not about um, just course. Course always affects source. Source always affects course. They're all, it's all mixed together, and it's not just individual people, it's always communal. And what Christ wants is people embedded in a community of love and, and, and mercy and grace and self-sacrifice. Only relationships like that can make us fully human, teach us what it means to be human. Only relationships like that can, can lead us to the kingdom of God. And so Jesus is really training us to follow this new command of love and then asking us to go roll like Sully Sullenberger kind of break the rules as we improvise this way toward the kingdom.
And um, I'm, glad he, I'm glad he taught this way, especially on days where I feel like I'm landing the plane on the Hudson, you know? Let's, let's pray. <clears throat> oh, God, we do confess our deep need for you. And this desire we have to not be found out as ragamuffins. And I pray that you would make this church a place where we can all be drawn out into the open. I do pray that we would care deeply about course and and how we live the steps we take. Um, And that it would shape the source of our life, but I pray that it will always be honoring Christ's teaching and pointing us toward relationships of love and self-sacrifice. But we need your help, so please help us with this. Amen. If you would stand, please. We're going to receive communion. The way we do communion is you just release row by row and you'll come forward. We're adding a server to make things go a little more quickly. So you'll just come, just find whoever's open. They won't be just standing in front of rows now. We'll just be up in the front. Just find the next one that's open. You can receive it. And what they'll do is offer you a plate of bread and cup and you can just take a piece of the bread and dip it in the cup and then receive it. And they'll say, remember the body and blood of Christ. And you can say, I will remember or respond however you feel comfortable. The reason that we do this is that on the night when Jesus was betrayed, before he was arrested, he had his guys together and he took a loaf of bread and a cup and he had them all share the same cup. And he said something weird. He said, this this is my body broken for you and this cup is a new covenant in my blood. This cup is like my blood, my life. And he said, whenever you get together, Take my body, my blood, my life into your life and be made out of the stuff I'm made of. Live, live in the world the way I live in the world. And um, then you'll be my hands and feet and, and the kingdom will be in your midst. He said, every time you gather, do this. And so that's why we receive communion. And that's why we also don't put any limits on who gets to take part. Anybody can come to the table. So I would invite you to pray a blessing with me on this meal. Oh God, we ask you to bless this bread and this cup. May it be to us a means of your grace, a spiritual food and drink. And as we receive it into our bodies, may we receive you once again. Come and live inside us. Make us new from the inside out and then send us out into the world to be salt and light and let the world feast on us and taste and see your goodness. To the glory of Jesus Christ, our risen Savior, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forevermore. Amen. Will you come?